Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I really can't believe it. This is episode 100. If you have listened to every episode, congratulations. I am so impressed. And if you haven't, I totally understand. And I don't expect everyone to, or even anyone to listen to everyone. But just guys' support through listening and sharing feedback and reaching out and sharing it with your friends and your colleagues and all of that has just been insanely humbling and makes me want to continue to improve it. And I will be, and I'm excited for a few of the newer things that are coming out. I have actually recorded this part five times now, which I'm going to tell you in a minute why, but I really don't have time to record this five times. I need to just like sit down, record this and go towards all the things in my day because today is going to be crazy. But I've ended up spending like five minutes thanking so many people. It's turned into like an Academy Award speech. But and I really just want to, you know, dive into online fraud trends and information because that is why you listen. But just please know that I wouldn't keep doing this if it wasn't for all of you listening. Somehow this podcast has grown three times in the last five months just by download numbers. And that's how we measure um, our growth and our success. I know a big part of that has been choosing the right sponsors and ensuring that they align with my values as well as in how they approach new customers and how they treat their current customers, as well as innovating their products and ensuring that they truly are continually improving. And I've heard from a lot of you who have really appreciated that. And that's such good validation because I was very resistant to bringing on sponsors, even though I wanted to for obvious reasons, just to allow me to prioritize this just as much as my consulting clients. But I was nervous about being a sellout or shilling for companies that I just didn't feel like were the best match for me in sharing. And that's if you've listened to merchants or from Mars vendors or from Venus or other parts, you can probably read more into that because you know where I stand as far as knowing that solution providers are such a critical part of fighting fraud, but also being conflicted when they don't always represent themselves or their company in the best light or they are exploitative, etc. So I'm just very grateful. It has allowed me to be able to focus on improving this podcast over time, as well as being able to meet great companies a little bit more. So, okay, I got it down to three minutes. I'm going to stop there. Although I do really need to shout out Lucas Walker. He's my podcast producer and the founder and owner of the Rolled Up Network. He is a huge reason why this podcast has been so successful in the last several months and in bringing in sponsors, as well as just a lot of other little things behind the scenes, including just holding me accountable while still understanding that life happens. And I just, okay, I think I'm done there. (laughs) But I am grateful to everyone who shares their time by listening and sharing their information in interviews, etc. So the bigger topic that I wanted to just kind of dive into today is 
a little bit of a continuation from last week. Uh, last week, I uh, talked about, I knew there was change in the water. I didn't realize how quickly it would happen. It, just within the five days of me recording that podcast and it being released, there was a lot of changes that happened. And I was like, oh, this recession really is hitting us very quickly and it's happening quicker than I expected. But so I'm going to dive into a little bit more on that as well as some of the areas that I think every company should be focusing on most as far as the areas of most vulnerability right now and that what companies should be focusing on to try to protect your bottom line and save as much money as possible. Because especially in a recession, the people who save the most money for a company suddenly become almost as important, if not more important than the people who bring in new top line revenue. And knowing those areas of where I think it, and I have a lot of a, a lot of evidence to back that up, it might be helpful just to kind of prioritize. So to batten down the hatches, so to speak, that's a very U.S. centric term. But when there's a hurricane and I'm not I don't live in hurricane areas, but I know that it's important to board up the windows and the doors. I just want to help which windows to prioritize first and getting to talk to so many different merchants of different types, I think I've got a pretty good list. So that's going to be the main topic for today. The first thing, however, before diving into that, or actually I should say second thing, beyond just being grateful to all of you for getting us to episode 100, I have a lot of changes going on in my life right now. I think a lot of you do, whether it's new job or new house or new, just so many things. A lot of the changes are for the better, and I am very grateful for that. There will always be that mix of bitter and sweet. It's because of the the bitter moments and and the harder things that we can be even more appreciative for the good the good things in our lives. And so I am choosing to focus primarily on the good changes in my life. But the biggest one, and I'm not going to share all of them because this is not why you tuned in. And I think that's probably for the best. But the biggest change for me is that uh, my family and I are moving. Uh, we're actually moving today <laughs> uh, in about mm, less than uh, about an hour. The movers uh, for the furniture are going to be coming. So this is literally the last episode I am recording in this room where so many podcast episodes have been recorded in the past. And it is for the better. We're not only moving out of this house, but we are moving out of Seattle. That has been my home for the last 15 years. But because of some family circumstances changing, it became important for us to move back to where both my husband and I are from. He moved to Seattle a few years before I did, and we actually didn't meet until he was already here. But we are both from the same town. It's very weird how that all worked out. And so we're moving back. We will be closer to Idaho, the state of Idaho, than we will the Pacific Ocean. For those of you that don't know the Pacific Northwest uh, geography, uh, well, that is okay. But I will still be in the same time zone. Also, there won't be much changes. But one of the reasons I wanted to share that was because I'm not going to be as responsive to email and LinkedIn as I usually am. And even then, I'm not as good as I want to be. So just thought I'd let you know if you've reached out to me recently in the last couple of weeks, don't be ashamed to reach back out and put it back on top of my inbox. I am 
doing the best I can to manage the clients that I have and keep this podcast running while also packing and doing so many details. I really forgot how many just small things there are that you have to think about when you move. But I'm also so grateful to have a husband that thinks about a lot of those things too. So we already have internet in our new house that we haven't even moved in yet. But of course, like, thank goodness he's in IT, so he's got that taken care of. But just wanted to let you know that is a change in my life. That is one of the reasons why there's just one episode this week. The other is that it was a short week in the U.S. So Lucas and I felt like, well, you know, this is okay to just do one episode. Uh, And because today's episode 100, I wanted to make sure that there was fresh content for you this week. But also next week, I'll be doing like a replay of an interview I did for another podcast that I think some of you will find interesting. And then after that, I've got some really good guests coming up. And I feel like I haven't brought on as many new guests as I wanted to recently. I am forever grateful for the returning guests. And I know a lot of them are your favorites. So there is no shade there, but it takes a little extra work to get Uh, new guests, especially with comms teams and all of that. And so it's a few extra steps than a lot of other podcasts go through. But I'm really excited about who's coming up and some of the stories and perspectives that you guys are going to get to hear and some of the growth of this podcast. One of the benefits of that is getting to have even better guests. So I'm excited about that. Oh, one other thing before we dive into true fraud related topics is that Lucas and I, my podcast producer and I, will be sending out a uh, survey to you all soon. We'll be putting it in the show notes. I'll be talking about it a lot. I'll probably be posting on LinkedIn about it quite a bit. I want to know not only what you like about the podcast, but really how we can improve. And that's the best way to do it. That Just be aware that's coming. I hope you can set aside five minutes just to share that with us so that we can continue to just make this what you want and need it to be. I don't want to go anywhere and I don't want you to either. So with that, I'm going to just pause for a quick minute for you to hear about our newest sponsor. Well, new old. You'll see what I mean in a minute. And then not old, but uh, new slash returning. And then we're going to dive in to talk a little bit about just some of the new fraud trends and areas of vulnerability as our world moves into this state of recession. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other 
business models. For some clients, they use sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So on last week's episode, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I thought it was important to talk about the fact that things are changing in e-commerce and in technology and in the world, economically as well as in a lot of other ways. And we're just going to focus on economically right now. And one of the things I had said when I recorded it, and it is generally true, is that for the most part, fraud and risk roles are usually pretty recession proof. It's important to retain as much revenue as possible for your company uh, in addition to growing it. But that becomes even more important when the economy doesn't promise a lot of upside and a lot of top line revenue or as much as before. So I felt confident saying that. I still believe that. However, within those days of me recording it and it releasing Two very large companies laid off a significant portion of their risk and fraud and, and compliance roles. I, I believe they were based on geography and not at all performance or anything like that. And I know that those companies have been doing some changes in their technology piece. So it could be that this was planned already, but it really, I think, hit our industry hard because we often kind of assume that we have job security. Now, I will say that I believe we should have job security, but we can't control the decisions made on paper by leadership several areas up. We can't control it. However, we can try to influence it a little bit. And I talked a lot about that in last week's episode as far as being, we need to be better at communicating to leadership and other cross-functional teams about our value and we have done as well as what we are doing and, and planning to do and also ask them to participate and work with us so that they can see that we really value the company and the bottom line. We're not just there to stop sales. But it's a scary time. It, it's terrifying. I remember going through a recession for a startup. I talked about it last week. Like fear makes people do some crazy shit and it's a hard time. But it also can be a time of opportunity and I try, I'm sorry if I'm seeing like Pollyanna, but I do in hindsight and one of the benefits of age and going through a time like this before is knowing that in the long run, most of the time you'll look back on the hardship and go, okay, well, there was a purpose for that. It doesn't make it easier now at all, but it's just all of this is a really good reminder that it's important to stay connected with our industry and peers and to update your resume every year or so, like just in case, have it updated, have it ready. I hate doing my resume. I hate, I, I even have a hard time doing proposals sometimes, which is really silly as a business owner, but I think it, it goes to the same thing where it can be uncomfortable for some of us to talk about ourselves, but you will want that and you will be glad that you did that just in case. It's having homeowner's insurance, right? You hope you never have to use it, but it's really nice to have when you need it. And that's the way I feel about updating your LinkedIn profile, your resume, keeping connected with your network, et cetera. The good news is that I'll, most of companies do recognize the importance of fraud and trust and safety, and there are more opportunities and higher 
hiring. And I started a group a couple years ago on LinkedIn. It's just a place really for me to to post job postings that get sent to me as well as they see in my feed and for others to do that as well. And we've welcomed in a few extra hundred people in the last few weeks on that group. I will try to remember to put that in the show notes. If I don't, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Just know that, again, my brain is in a million different pieces right now. So I might forget if you're interested in that group, whether you're a hiring manager or you're starting to keep an eye out. It's not a comprehensive list because I'm in the U.S. It's primarily U.S. positions and I try to prioritize remote U.S. positions. But I know that About-Fraud also has their own LinkedIn group for fraud positions that are a lot more international. So we're both doing it just in different ways and both are important, but still also really important for you to do your own due diligence. I just sometimes learn about things that aren't always boosted or posted heavily. So That is where I put those. But with several high-profile layoffs recently and knowing that more are likely to come, plus there's just a lot of devastating news around the world. This is a silly, I I know you'll probably really rise, and it's not silly, it's important, but like, I just, I want to remind everybody to take care of themselves. I didn't the first time around in a recession, and it really was detrimental. I had burnout a few years later, and I don't wish that on anyone. I talked about it in a long podcast ago. I think it was like something about like, I can't remember, something about the makings of a legend or something silly like that. But my own career path story, I really, the reason I started consulting is because I had burnout and I couldn't work 40 hours a week anymore. Now, eight years later, feeling much better, but I've just learned the importance. I know we're, most of us are workaholics and what we do is very important. But it is not more important than taking care of yourself. And I also know that as a recovering workaholic, we don't often listen to other people's advice, but just try to prioritize yourself. If anything, these layoffs, you know, probably are teaching or not teaching, but reminding people that most companies aren't as loyal to us as we are to them. I'm not saying to play hooky for five days in a row. God, don't do that. I mean take planned PTO if you need to, but just when you're thinking about writing those emails at 10 o'clock at night, just think, do I need sleep more? Yeah, probably. Because you're no good to anyone if you burn out and just are too exhausted. So that's my Susie Sunshine words of advice for the day. But I just, it's easy to think that we can just dive into work and overcompensate. And if I just work hard enough, if I just do more, And that's just not how life works. So it's better that you take care of yourself and prioritize things. Also, between the bad news in the world and what a lot of us, but you especially on the front lines, seeing and dealing with, it can be very negative. And so make sure that you prioritize some fun and joy with your family and friends and and all of that. So even though it's not calm right now and we know there's a storm ahead, like I mentioned before, it's kind of like a hurricane and going, okay, which windows do we need to secure first? Which ones do we need to board up first? Where do we need to look? Where, you know, which direction is the storm coming from, so to speak, in this analogy? There are three areas where I think are going to be most important to watch over the next several months. This is where we're probably going to start seeing signs of change from a fraud and loss perspective. The first one is your chargeback rates. That seems like a no-brainer, but it's actually, they're changing a lot right now. 
Um, there's a lot of change in the volume of chargebacks online merchants are receiving, as well as the reason codes. I had a really great conversation with members of the ticketing call that I host every other week. Actually, we're moving it to once a month now because there's a few less people, <laughs> a lot less people than there were two years ago. But it's still a really good group. And it's event ticketing and travel companies that were greatly impacted at the first week of COVID. And we've just kept this up. And after they were done having that conversation, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I recorded that. It was so good. Really what they were talking about was how they've seen service level chargebacks just greatly increase. And usually fraud related chargebacks are, you know, between 50 and 75% of a merchant's reason codes. That's shifting. And we were talking about different reasons why. One is that consumers are more aware of what chargebacks are after the pandemic. If they had travel or they had tickets coming up especially, but there were other categories as well, they learned that maybe the ticketing provider couldn't cancel the concert because the promoter and, and other people didn't want to cancel it. They just wanted to keep pushing it out. So instead, consumers were able to call their bank and get their money back. To them, that's as simple as that. To them, usually their bank is the hero. So their bank gave them their money back. Yay! We know the truth, but that's okay. And the service-related reason codes are going up in addition to fraud for a lot of reasons. I think consumer expectations are that there's not a lot of consumer uh, accountability anymore. And that's shifting in a lot of ways partially because of the pandemic, partially because of generational changes and, and other things. But the other thing is, especially in the U.S., issuers are competing with each other and they've competed on rates. They've competed on rewards points and all other things. One way that they're competing with each other now is ease of filing a chargeback. And there are justified reasons for filing chargebacks. Like, don't get me wrong, please. I know that. But when I reached out to a specific issuing bank a few months ago to say, hey, like it seems like something's going on, like all of a sudden in the last few months, there's just a lot more chargebacks on things like for restaurants, the tip amount or other MCC codes for this or that. And their response was, perhaps you've seen our, our latest announcement on our UX changes. And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> And I, they didn't tell me this is how they're competing with each other, but I know that issuing bank goals are to be top of wallet more than anything else, especially in the U.S. with how competitive the landscape is. And one way they can do that without it costing a lot of money is to make it very easy to issue a chargeback. Sometimes the consumer doesn't even know that's what they're doing, but it's usually on their website. And the point was made on this ticketing call, and I thought it was a really good one, that nobody wants to sit on the phone anymore. And if the only way they can cancel a subscription or cancel a event or a purchase is to call customer service, but then they can go online to their you know credit card company and just click a button and get issue a chargeback, to them, the outcome is the same. They're getting their money back. So that is something to think about if, if you are... Still relying on customers to call customer service and share with your companies that maybe it's better for a lot of reasons to cut calls down, to cut customer service costs down, et cetera, to offer an online option. Now, it comes with a huge caveat because the next thing I'm going to talk about is watching your refund rates and your return rates. It's tricky. It's not like, oh, we just need to issue all refunds. But if it's within certain parameters, if a refund is due, if somebody has canceled a subscription, if someone wants to cancel something within time, make it easier for them so that there are 
there's less quantity going to their bank. And then you can focus on responding to the chargebacks where a refund isn't due. A lot of the things we talked about on this call was just how the system needs to change the way that Visa is setting the thresholds. It's all about incoming chargebacks. And that made sense when there was accountability on consumers and cardholders, as well as issuers on issuing more chargebacks. It was a little bit harder to issue fraud chargebacks and other things. But now with the world changing, with people wanting to have experiences and buy the extras, but not being able to afford them, chargebacks are going to keep going up. And maybe because especially there was a specific merchant who they're an international merchant. And so they said they don't have this problem in any other geography except for the U.S. Not surprising to any of us. They said their chargeback rates are just through the roof. However, they're winning like 60 to 70 percent of their chargebacks. And that win rate really varies on a lot of things. They are exceptional at responding to their chargebacks. They really understand the process. They are one that I really enjoy actually learning from, whereas a lot of times I'm the one sharing information, which both are very important. But so they're winning them. And they're like, if there's not a lot of accountability on how they're coming in, why can't we be, why can't that threshold be after we've gone through the response process? And that's something a lot of people have talked about for a long time. But I think that uh, especially with the last recession and how much it impacted chargebacks, I do think that's something we should be advocating for. This is not the episode for that, but I am just throwing that out there that I think it's time to rethink some of these systems. Um, I've thought it for a long time, but this is just another example of that. But that's going to be a much longer battle. For now, I think making contacting customer service or receiving a refund when it's due and if it's warranted, making it easier is a good goal to have, as well as have a process to correctly respond to chargebacks to recover as much revenue as possible. Because the chargeback system is so subjective, there are a lot of different solution providers, as well as just people within the merchant side that often are doing themselves a disservice by the way they're responding to chargebacks, by the way that they are, by the the decisions they make on which chargebacks to respond to and just all of those things. And so I think it's really important to look at your process and determine if it is accurate. Are you responding correctly? Are you responding to the right ones? Are you putting enough resources involved there? There are some companies I talk to that they're responding to every single chargeback, but their win rate is so low. And there are a lot of things that can be done to improve that. And a lot of times it can just be wasted uh, resources. And that's not the best way to do it either. So I've talked about chargebacks on other episodes. I'll probably do another one just fully on that again fairly soon uh, because it's something I'm getting a lot of questions about. But those are things, you know, that are important as you're looking at recovery. It's also a great way to show your company, hey, we were going to lose X amount in chargebacks, but because of our team or because of the partner that we chose in responding to chargebacks. And that is one I am, that is an area I am very critical in. And unfortunately, the majority of companies aren't handling them in the best way, in my opinion. And then I have a lot of years and a lot of successes under my belt that feel like that's the right opinion. But when you're able to say, like, look at the partner we selected, they've recovered X or because of our process, we've recovered Y. That can be a game changer, especially as companies are looking for leaning, getting lean on areas of the business are to keep or not. If you're able to show that you have recovered millions of dollars in the last couple of months 
that's going to help your case for you and your team. Okay, so like I mentioned, this may sound contradictory, but the next area to really pay attention to, especially if you're a retailer or anything with delivery, uh, whether it's food delivery, grocery delivery, etc., is to pay attention to your refund rates, specifically the refunds without merchandise being returned back. I cannot overstate how badly this problem of refund fraud is impacting retailers. I started talking about it at the very beginning of this podcast. So like less than two years ago that this was going to be the new friendly fraud chargebacks. And it is. And I know there are a lot of challenges to getting your head around which ones are valid and which ones aren't and all of that. I'm working with a group of merchants now that we've made a lot of progress on that. But there's only so much I can share in a shorter podcast as well as I do need to keep some things not so public for a lot of reasons. But I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But here are the path of least resistance. So obviously refunders are going to go path of least resistance. Now, I know that I just said make giving refunds easier. That's when they're owed. That's when they're due. However, I think it's really important to note that the people who are targeting your company specific for refund fraud are not partial to chargebacks. They would rather return the items and miraculously find them and return them than issue a chargeback. I've talked about why earlier, but there's the rates of that. And I have done some A-B testing with some very large emergents are significantly low. So that is why it's important to, as long as you are declining issuing refunds on the right things in the right ways, it's not going to impact your chargebacks. That is, that makes sense why you would think that, but it's um, not the case. So the path of least resistance is for people to contact your customer service and just say they didn't receive the item or they're claiming inventory not received, delivery not received. That's the easiest way. As long as your customer service makes that easy, that's really all they're going to do. Once you put some parameters on that, then they'll move to claiming that they received an empty box, that the item was damaged when they received it. Then they'll take advantage of the window between the return tracking going to the warehouse and when the warehouse actually opens the box to find garbage or pinata candy or a can of peas or whatever it is in the box instead. So they're taking advantage of that. If you're able to get that under control, then they're going to manipulate the tracking numbers other or tracking labels. There are various methods depending on the carrier that they're doing there. But really, the goal is to always make it look like it was the merchant's fault. And so they have to issue a refund, whether that was lost in transit or turned to sender or it's at your warehouse. Look at the tracking, even though. It never really was received there. Now, the biggest threat to refunds, and I haven't talked about this before, and I will probably talk about it more in a future episode, but there's only so much I can say because I don't want to shout out name of the company. So that makes it harder. But there is at least one carrier where there are a lot of their compromised logins of their employees available to refunders. And this allows them to change the final tracking status. So of the tracking ID, the final status, when it was going to be delivered, now they're changing the status manually with these employee logins from the shipping carriers to say that the item was lost in transit or it was returned to sender. There are identifiers uh, to these to kind of know if it happens, but you really have to dive into the details. And unfortunately, most of the time when someone calls customer service or they call you know, their bank or they call PayPal, if they're doing it that way, somebody's just going to look at the final status and they're going to say it was lost in transit. So yeah, of course, here's your money back. This isn't happening to everyone. This is really happening once you've taken care of those other least resistance areas, because it's expensive to have this happen. If you want someone else to change the 
uh, final status of a tracking number it is around 35 euro to do that for each one if you want to purchase a login they of course recommend that you change the password immediately because it's account takeover but if you want to do it that way then it's 900 dollars uh, us so it's expensive they're not going to do it unless they you know have to but it's important and while this is really impacting one carrier right now i am almost positive that there are other merchants seeing signs that the other carriers are being manipulated in this way as well and this is really frustrating a lot of times these multi-system things it's whether somebody's taking advantage of an alternative payment method or carrier etc the merchant's on the hook so it's really, really, really challenging. But there are signals for each of these methods. They're much different than payment fraud signals. So it's impossible to, you know, identify at the time of purchase because often they're on new accounts or they've only had good history. There's no previous abuse on the account that would make it easy. And I wish that were the case, but that is not our luck. I am working with a company to create a beta product on identifying refund fraud it will be a standalone product i'm really excited about that it's not just about like my own ambitions it really is about trying to get this problem under control i feel like i know this issue from both the refunder side as well as the merchant side better than most anyone and uh, there will be more news on that later but that is something i'm working on in my free time but it's something that i'm really excited about and i have found the right partner for that so stay tuned on that i also am if I get enough people interested in signing up for the refund workshop or masterclass that I hosted back in September for about 25 of literally the biggest retailers in the U.S., I'm happy to consider reviving that. I think I've only just had a couple people here and there talk about it, but that is something that I think could really help you understand the signals and the tips and the, the signs of each one of these methods being used against your company. And then the last area to watch closely, and this is not a comprehensive list, but these are the three areas that I'm noticing now are really on an uptick and that are probably the first priority to look at are account takeovers. I, I talked about them on the online fraud is in a state of emergency episode. They are on the rise and causing a lot of issues, not only losses due to using the card on file or draining air miles or loyalty points or the credits on accounts, but also it's just a really bad customer experience for account holders and a loss of trust equals a loss of sales. If you have not listened to the case study episode I did a few weeks ago, I really highly recommend it. I've probably received some of the best feedback on that specific episode of late. Uh, I really was conflicted about sharing some of those specific case studies, but I was like, I think as long as I don't share the company names, it'll be okay. And hopefully that's enough context and blah, blah, blah. I just get in my head a lot. And it seems like that was really helpful to people because we've always had this hypothesis that loss of trust equals loss of sales. But hearing that one particular marketplace did a study and looked at account spend and saw that account spend went from X to 60% less the year after their account was taken over is something that you just can't uh, dispute. Now, I highly recommend if you're interested in this to do your own similar study on this on your end. It, it could be more, it could be less, but that really quantifies the fact that if a customer's account is taken over, they've lost trust in your company and they will choose to spend their money elsewhere. So that makes it even more important than even the dollars lost. There 
are going to be other areas within your specific business that could experience more fraud or losses than usual. I think that the biggest plan for this, establish metrics for each area that you want to keep an eye on. Have a backup strategy or a solution to implement if losses increase. That's something that cybersecurity will do. And I think that's something that we need to learn from them on. Having this emergency plan or, okay, if we see account takeovers going up past this point from what we can measure, then we're going to implement multi-factor authentication or we're going to implement a stronger device ID or we're going to you know work with this company, whatever it is, or we're going to change a process or whatever. If we start to see service level chargebacks go up. Let's really dive into the details on are there any similarities on those products or services? Do we need to be providing more customer education at time of checkout? Like really do some root cause analysis and figure out if your metrics hit X, what are you going to put in place? Because it's way better to do that now than it is when everything's on fire. And that is something I've learned from the cybersecurity industry. Communicate your issues to leadership so that they can communicate it up the ladder if need be. You don't want there to be surprises for you or your leadership or cross-functional teams, especially right now. Like I said, fear is in the water in a lot of places and it can make a lot of people do crazy things, not just you, other areas of the business. So just providing that consistent information, not spamming them, but just once a week or once a month saying, hey, here's our levels. This is how much we've recovered. This is how much we've saved. This is what we're working on to increase sales, the good sales, to reduce false positives, et cetera. Just you don't want them to worry about you. You want them to feel confident that you know what you're doing and you're doing a great job and you are protecting the company's bottom line as much as you can. So guys, I really need to get packing. <laughs> And also that is it for our episode today. That is more important. Again, I just really appreciate you. I love hearing what you want to learn about next, who you want to hear from next. So please let me know and you can look forward to sharing even more of that in the survey coming up. And I am excited to celebrate episode 200. Oh my gosh. But thanks again for being part of this journey. I am grateful that I am a part of yours and I will talk See you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.